Check, 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 check. All right. Um, to, to make a very, very important point associated with these two words, but now. And we're going to be in this a lot. What does Paul mean by but now? And if you go look at the Pauline corpus for those two words, you'll see he uses this phrase uh, a handful of times. And when you go look at that, and I would encourage you to do that, and if you don't have a good way to go find them, go find one. There's lots of good digital resources that will let you say, but now, Pauline corpus, and boom, there they all are. But we will look next week at just the profound truth embedded in the but now. And it is, it is stunning as you begin to, to really look into it carefully. But as we know, uh, Paul has brought us through for the wrath of God is revealed on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who, what? Suppress the truth. Now think about that. Seriously. Think about the, and don't, don't think too narrowly about the truth, right? Much of truth is self-evident all around us. And look how much suppression of that obvious truth is going on in our day. But it is absolutely true of the scriptures and within the visible church today, right? But I want to kind of uh, just maybe uh, heighten our attentiveness to what is at the center of Paul's but now. And I want to ask a question and it's drawn from Romans 2, 4, and 5 as we were studying that, right? Um, can we see the kindness of God in his wrath? You ever think of God's wrath that way? Is there a biblical basis for that? The kindness of God in his wrath. And of course, we could go through, we could go back to Romans 2, 4, and 5, because it's right there, right? Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it was to bring us to repentance? There, there's part of it. But I thought about it as we were approaching this, this time at which we call to mind the, the incarnation of our Lord. There, there is no better expression of God's kindness in his wrath than the wrath that he poured out on our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there it is. You see the kindness of God on our behalf, our sinful humanity's behalf. Is it because he poured that wrath due us out on his beloved son? And there's the beautiful basis for we can see the kindness of God and the wrath of God. And what is important about that is if we don't see the wrath of God all around us, we are not seeing the world biblically. Look at these drug cities. Look at New York City where 75% of African-American women abort their babies. 
look at the, look, just look, 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 look. You see the wrath of God everywhere. And yet, that is the kindness of God because we're breathing, we're seeing, and we're able to give testimony to not only is that the wrath of God, but there is a way to be free from that wrath, the gospel, right? So in there is the basis for expressing the good news of the gospel that has to first come to a realization that the wrath of God is made visible all around us, but we suppress that truth, right? Thankfully, this book brings us through that very dark storm of the wrath of God so that every mouth may be shut, so that Paul could get to the, but now the righteousness of God is revealed, right? Apart from the law, apart from works, although they bore witness to it, right? And it, it, the but now was always pointing to the promised one, the line of the promise, right? The one from Genesis 3.15, the one from Isaiah 9, right on through that line. So before we, we get ready to pray, um, I, I just want to draw some of Paul's language to this but now in its previous state was revealed as a mystery something that was purpose but not yet known is this mystery. You ever look at what that mystery is? Anybody have any thoughts? Now, our Christmas party wasn't that wild and crazy last night. What's the mystery? the church mystery is the church you ever think about I mean let's think about that this mystery that was born with this but now is the church and the church age which we're in right now and as we'll see next week she has one and one only expressed purpose in the will of God. What is that? Hmm? To be missional? Why? Yes. That is the expressed purpose and will of God for the mystery of the church, singular, glorify Christ. You want to know the will of God for the church, for our role in the church? It is to glorify Christ, right? We'll unpack all this over the next, well, the, this morning and next week, but, but turn with me to Hebrews 1, and I don't know that I could, I could, 
you know, possibly express, I know that I can't possibly express better than what this passage reveals to us. Which is the answer to why are we to glorify Christ? Well, here's a great place to go when it comes to answering that question. But look at how this passage pulls in the but now, the past, the present, and the future. The one who always was. Here he is. Long ago, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Exact. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know what that name is? It's Lord. Lord, my Lord, your Lord, right? Just speaks to the reverence and the, the humility that should come with the privilege to come before this Lord who is seated on the throne, right? Think about that. These are, God's not trying to stir us up to some kind of euphoric thing here. He's trying to focus us right on Christ and not let any of the nonsense that goes on in his name stick, right? Which is why we have to be diligent in the scriptures to be able to rightly present the Lord Jesus Christ and the state of this humanity right now and has always been, right? Let me pray for us and we'll work our way into this. Father, what a blessed gift it is to come before you in the company of the saints and to open up your word and to express our hearts to you. I pray that we would do that, Father, faithfully, carefully, and diligently that as you have in so many ways revealed to us that we might honor your beloved son and all that you have accomplished through him and all that he has accomplished on our behalf for you. And Lord, we will see that unpacked this morning. 
just how beautifully you have set us free from that which we could never be free from apart from your blessed work and the work of our triune God. So we just praise you each and we just lift up this morning of worship and praise to exalt the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's just read this passage and I'm going to I'm going to touch on a few other passages in Romans that help us unpack it a little bit more for this morning's study. But just open up with me in Romans 3.21. I'm just going to read 3.21 through 26. And just pay attention to some of the deep truths that are embedded here. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith. Pay attention to those words. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Pay attention to that. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I think we can all say thanks be to God for that, right? It was to show his righteousness at the present time. That is a monumentally important part of this passage. That's the key that Paul is trying to express in a very complex section of Scripture. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just on one side of this text. He might be just and the just a fire of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we'll see that those two words have very different objects in their purpose. Very different. Because something dramatic happened here. Frankly, there are things that we can't even fully comprehend. And they occurred within the Trinity. 
with no participation from us whatsoever. That's really important. That's why this text is just a cavern of truth that you can't ever fully explore. This occurs within the Trinity from before the foundation of the world and then was made manifest to us through the incarnation of this little babe that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks. Just bring it to that because that that has just been in so many ways turned into something far lighter and far fluffier than what it actually is. That baby, as Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said, was born to die a horrible death. And that's exactly what Mary found out when it was just a brand new baby, right? Look at Romans 5, 9 through 10 as we build this this out. And you're going to see a, a, a sequence here that's very important. Romans 5, 9 through 10 says, Since, therefore, and here he brings forward this Romans 3, 21 through 26. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. This is another key piece of this that I want us to pay attention. Much more. Okay? That tells us that there was something much more than the cross, right? Thank goodness the Bible says that. <laughs> there was something much more and equally essential to the cross. And Paul's going to get at it right here. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, so there's one side of it, you see, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we're justified on one side, saved on the other side. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, very, very key, much more, and here it comes, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the sequence is enemies, reconciled, saved. There's an order there that Paul is beginning to unpack for us. Enemies, reconciled, saved. I hope what you'll begin to see and Likely, many of you have, have walked the battlegrounds. But, but these texts, more than anything, should reveal to us the importance in all of our evangelism, in all of our teaching, of being able to communicate the ever-divisive, doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It is so important 
that we understand this as believers and can communicate this to people who are vehemently opposed to the idea that there is more than one way to be right with God. That's what Paul is demolishing with this text. Look at Romans 5, just a few verses down at verse 15. And you'll see this exclusivity begin to show up. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. So there's that exclusivity we're talking about. Abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And those of you who might study or be forced into these studies, uh, there is a pretty aggressive movement right now that is trying very hard to modify the entire doctrine of original sin so that they can justify a universal atonement. You just have to understand these texts to see how that absolutely goes against what our triune God has accomplished. Because in it sits a mystery that we can never comprehend, the doctrine of election. But because we can't comprehend it, we want to rewrite the scriptures so that it squares with the way we like to think about it. And the absolute foundation of why it required Jesus Christ begins to get dynamited right out from underneath what has always been held true by the church. Okay, And this text really speaks very, very clearly to the importance of it. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the results of that one man's sin. That's universal sin because for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation to the whole world and left us in that Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 state. We are destined, dominated, right? Dead. That's what Romans 2 or Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 tells us, right? And thank God for that, but God being rich in mercy. And that's exactly what Paul is speaking to here. The one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, and it does, right? Two things for sure for every one of us, except for those that, you know, it didn't. <laughs> Sin will mar your life, even to the very last day of your life, and death. It's the wrath of God. It's the continuing effect of the fall, even for the believer. But the believer, of course, has the promise of the new body, of, of the heavenly 
dwelling, which we are going to be newly outfitted to be a part of. Because that sin that we struggle with is this stuff right here, the flesh, as Paul will help us out in Romans 7 with if we ever get there. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. There you see. The free gift of righteousness. That's why Paul says it was apart from the law. It's apart from your works. It's a free gift of righteousness. And it had nothing to do with you. Reign in life through the one man. Jesus Christ. Again, the exclusivity of Christ that we see there. Now, I want to just stir us up a little bit um, and just kind of reinforce why it is so important that we realize the importance of the great commission, which is to go make disciples. We don't save anybody. We can't even create the desire for the word of God. We can't create the desire for God. We are to go make disciples. To come alongside of people and find on-ramps into the truth of Scripture in their lives. Right? I think you'll see why um, why the church Visible, regenerate, right? Has got a little bit of work to do. This is pretty sobering. Through a series of surveys done by the American Bible Society, Christianity Today, and the Barter Group, when you begin to look at just these four data points, you begin to see that that we have taken the gospel and turned it into a blob of Play-Doh to shape it into whatever you want it to be or whatever you think the person who's going to hear it wants to hear. Fifty-one percent of American adults who profess to be Christians claim to have a traditional view, whatever that is, quite frankly. But it's 51%, right? In 1973, or 1991, it was 73%. 
So we see this decline in a traditional view of the triune holiness of God into something else, right? Well, here are some of the attributes of that something else. Regarding Jesus, 44% of respondents who believe in Jesus also believed Jesus was a sinner. Now think about that. This is the church, visible. Forty-one percent said he did not. Yep. There you go. There you go. put a light note on a heavy subject. I remember when MacArthur was asked in one of the Q&As at Grace Church uh, about something that uh, Phil Johnson, I think his name was, from Duck Dynasty, and MacArthur just laughed, and, and then he just looked very sincerely at the congregation and says, please don't get your theology from Duck Dynasty, right? But the point is exactly that. We had better watch out. Because this is what it's doing to the minds of people, right? Now, we talked a lot about John 10 in light of Romans 1, 18, and just how many people who profess to be Christians have never come to the cross under the weight of the condemnation that is found in Romans 1, 18 through 32, all the way through 3.20 where our mouths are shut and we're accountable to God. John 10 would suggest that is the other way in which people come into the sheepfold. And Jesus goes into the sheepfold and he does what? He leads his people out because they hear his voice, they know his voice, and they believe his voice. So this is the voice we have to speak into a world that's being conditioned to say, what gospel are you talking about? Right? Many are called. Few. We should expect that. But we had better not compromise the gospel in doing that. And we had better know the gospel according to the Bible. And it is not some quick transaction that you encourage someone to do. Right? 52% believe that the Holy Spirit is not a living entity. But merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that regenerates us from death to life and then spends the entirety of the rest of our life sanctifying us in the Word of God and is actively communing with us in order to glorify Christ as the church, 52% of the professing church don't even know that Holy Spirit. They've never experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Right? What do they think when they read John 3? It's exactly what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. 
You can't even see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. You're trying to work your way there up your mountaintop of religion. Right? I'm telling you, unless you're born again, and by the way, that blows wherever it pleases to blow, you, you can't even see the kingdom of God. These people cannot even begin to see the kingdom of God if they don't believe the Holy Spirit is who the Holy Spirit says he is. And he says that from within here, doesn't he? From within that communion as you read the word of God and it just comes to life in your life. This piece made me think about, and although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen to this. The survey also revealed that more people believe in Satan, 56%, that believe in God, 51%, as an influential spiritual being. Additionally, 49% are unsure as professing believers in Jesus if God exists at all. You see the mess that we have, right? How much of God's wrath on this society right now is entirely associated to the work of the devil and not the wrath of God. Because we wouldn't want to impugn that on God. We would much rather blame it on the devil, right? And society would not like to hear that an awful lot of what we see all around us is the wrath of God on society, right? We would rather blame it on the devil. You see how important all these matters are in terms of our sharing of the gospel? And this will not win you a popularity contest in the face of the kind of nonsense that people are being programmed to believe about Christianity, right? But it makes perfect sense because what does 2 Thessalonians 2 teach us? Until the falling away comes, which is the apostasia, which is to hold firmly what was once believed by the church and then to just let it go, which is exactly the slide that we're on when you look at these types of assessments of the visible church. It all comes back to a distortion of the person of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the triune eternal from before the foundation of the world work that they were doing through the life of Jesus Christ revealed in this but now that Paul is teaching us about here. This is the point at which they chose to reveal what was eternally wrought so that we would know by looking at that cross 
what the righteousness of God was and is. It's Christ. It's not a thing. It's Christ. It's God keeping the law that they wrote perfectly to show that he was God in the only means by which the penalty for the violation of the law they wrote could be removed. It took God on a cross, and that's the point. It was the one from Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise that was also then echoed in Isaiah 9-6 that we'd love so dearly at this time of the year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And when I look at the absolute mess that our children are growing up into globally right now, I just thank God for what is moved through Isaiah in this passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And they have set another time out ahead of this church age where all this will be fully realized by us through our Lord Jesus Christ as he takes these places and sets the government that now governs the world on his shoulders. So a couple more places I want to go and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Look at how Paul evangelizes. Go to Acts 17 verse 22 and what we're looking at this presentation from Paul that Luke captured at the Areopagus, Mars Hill to the Athenian council. This was Paul's second apostolic journey. And I just think this is such a beautiful example and presentation of the gospel and the triune God, but most importantly and supremely the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at all that he has packed in this presentation of the gospel. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is a mastery of Paul, right? Wouldn't you love to be able to witness like this? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Sorry, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, they said. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I think Paul was talking about, you know, what you were talking about, Ryan. The times, and here's this kindness of God, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Exactly what he shows us in Romans 2. But now, and there they are, there's the words, he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's Romans 2, 4 and 5 to a T. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, here comes the much more, from the dead, which separates him from every man. Because what is the significance of Christ coming out of that tomb? What was accepted on the cross? That's exactly what Paul's getting at in this text. And that's what I want us to learn and take away. Because it is in the understanding of this that we will feel the gravity of the exclusivity of Christ and understand why that's so revoltive to people who want to come in to the sheepfold, the religious of Athens, some other way that's pleasing to them not acceptable to God. And they think they're perfectly fine in that state. And this is the purpose of the church, to glorify Christ, like Paul does here. I want to read from William Hendrickson. I often talk about these old dead guys, and they're just, they were just forged. He says this about this, section of Scripture, Romans 3.21. What took place when, to speak in human terms, in the quiet recesses of the eternal God triune, decided to deliver man from the greatest evil and to place him in possession of the greatest good and to do this at such a price Think of 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? 
is a matter so marvelous and sublime that in his epistle to the Ephesians, the apostle prays that the readers or hearers being rooted and established in love may be strong in unison with all the saints to grasp the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ, which can never be fully grasped. This too is a matter angels desire to look into, and it is the most glorious paradox one can imagine. Here in Romans 3.21, Paul states, but now, that is, at this present time, this very strategic moment in the history of redemption, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what we get to look back upon and understand like the Old Testament believers could never understand. We have been given that privilege and responsibility, right? To understand it and then communicate it and teach it. In Galatians 4.4, it's called the fullness of the time. A righteousness from God has been revealed. The righteousness goes into effect apart from the law, which can only mean, and you have to think about the war that threatened these men's lives every moment of every day at this time. And that war was the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church. They were coming after men who would make these statements and would burn them in the city centers. And often intentionally make the wood green so that it didn't burn hot. It burned for days. That was the hate towards this doctrine that Hendrickson is bringing out. This righteousness goes into effect apart from the law, which can only mean that it was not and can never be earned by men's obedience to God's law. It was and is a righteousness apart from the works of the law, as Paul says, in multiple places. So let's just end this morning with Galatians 4.4. 4. And we're going to unpack this a bunch next week. Paul says in Galatians 4.4 4 about this but now. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that's just a snippet of what Christ has done for us. Right? And we're just going to unpack that next week as we prepare for our celebration of his birth. So let me just pray for us one more time. Father, we just thank you for this blessed gift of your son. And we thank you for the wonderful way that the Holy Spirit has moved so many hearts and hands over time to pen these glorious truths for us. And we just praise you 
In his ever-precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.